If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 20 this morning. It can be found in your bulletin, but also it can be on the, it'll be on the screen behind me, and you have a pew Bible in front of you as well. As you're turning, let me make one announcement. I want to look on the announcements on the back page. Lots of things going on. You can read that. Let me highlight one. Uh, the one at the top, the church picnic. We went to two services in September, on September the 10th uh, in 2017, and that's great because we're growing, uh, but also it means that you might not see some people on a regular basis if you go to a different service and maybe you miss our kingdom communities. And so we want these things like the picnic and our Thanksgiving service. Those are opportunities, and we're hoping to plan a couple of more for us to get to, together as one big happy family uh, and celebrate and have fun uh, and really uh, interact with one another and, and continue to connect with uh, one another as a whole. The church picnic is a great opportunity uh, for you to take advantage of that. And so mark your calendar there. There's also a sign-up sheet in uh, the upper gathering hall as well with more information about the picnic and places for you to sign up. So take a look at that. This is God's word taken from Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 20. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God as Christ Jesus. So you sense this deep affection between Paul and the Galatians. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. That sounds a little strange, doesn't it? This is where many scholars believe, and there's other places in the New Testament. uh, Paul had an eye condition. He had an eye disease, something wrong with his eyes. That's where you get this idea of they would have given their very eyes to him because they loved him so deeply. Then he says, how then... Things have changed, obviously, in verse 16. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Which is all the book of Galatians, is him telling them the truth. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out from me, is what he's saying, that you may make much of them. It is, all, it is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I'm present with you. My little children... For whom I again, I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This is God's word. Let me ask God to come through the Spirit and to help us this morning with this passage. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart 
would be pleasing to you this morning, and I pray that you would take these words and do what we cannot do. Uh, Use them uh, in our lives. Apply this. Convict and challenge and rebuke and change and encourage us and show us Jesus in this passage. Encourage us by the fact that we are known and loved by the God of the universe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've been studying the book of Galatians this spring, and if you have been coming around uh, in, in the past few weeks, you really, it, it's getting, it's been thick. <laughs> it's been dense, it's been weighty, really since chapter 2, the middle of chapter 2, the Apostle Paul has been laying out uh, this theological argument uh, to the people at Galatians, and uh, that's important, it's weighty and dense, it's in the Bible, they're Bible words in Bible things that we are to know, and so they're important things. And he's been talking about things like the law and Abraham and the importance of Abraham and justification by faith. And last week we looked at this richness of this uh, term adoption and what it means for us. And in chapter 4, and and hopefully you picked up on this, it's it's different. Uh, He changes gears in chapter 4. And let me try to paint a picture to help you kind of get into this passage a little bit. You remember in your life, at some point, you've either, someone's probably, you've experienced this maybe with one of your parents, or with a teacher, or with a coach, or a grandparent, or maybe you've done something very similar with one of your own children, but when you want to communicate something really important to them, or something really serious to them, or you want to be tender, or vulnerable, or have a moment, we would say, What do you do? Well, normally you don't kind of look down on them, particularly if it's a young child. What do you you get down on their level and maybe you even grab them by the cheeks and you look at them in the eye or you kneel beside their bed or you get down in the floor and you sit with them and you get close. And when someone does that with you, it it gets very personal. It it gets very uh, intimate. That's what the Apostle Paul is doing in this portion of the book of Galatians. Paul, the Apostle Paul, basically says pause to the theological argument that he's been making. And so he comes down from behind his seminary lectern, so to speak. And he takes off his glasses. And he gets right down on their level and he looks them in the eye and he gets very, very personal. That's why if you look at your Bible... Uh, over this section, it probably says something like Paul's concern for the Galatians. You see, the scholar suddenly becomes the pastor. And he says things like, remember how I brought and preached Christ to you for the first time. And remember how you received me. You would even gouge out your own eyes for me. And he calls them little children and he warns them that the path that they're going down actually undoes the gospel. That's the whole point of the book of Galatians. The, ha- the path they are going down will lead to spiritual ruin. Remember the path they are going down without having to review everything. But they had been buying into the false teachers. The false teachers were preaching, yes, you need to believe in Jesus, but you also need works of the law. You need to become a Jew. You need to become circumcised and obey the law of Moses. You need to keep the rules, and then God will really accept you. That's what the false teachers were saying. You want to be a real Christian, you got to start law-keeping. 
That's the complete opposite of what Paul was preaching. And what he says the gospel he got from God was Jesus plus nothing. And in this passage, Paul is pressing in on the Galatians and calling them back to Jesus plus nothing. And so he's still doing the same thing, but here he takes a different approach. Gets down on the floor with them. And he looks them in the eye. And I think this is important. Is Paul disappointed? Absolutely he's disappointed. They're believing a different gospel. They are headed towards spiritual ruin. He's obviously disappointed he doesn't give up on them. He doesn't quit on them. He doesn't say, well, I'm, I'm through with you. I'm tired of this. Just go ahead and do your own thing. He presses in and moves towards them. And I think, and we're going to look at this through a little different lens this morning. I think we have a lot to learn from the Apostle Paul this morning and how he loves and serves and ministers to the Galatians. And so this morning, we're going to look at this passage through the lens of gospel-centered relationships and ministry. I want us to look at this passage through that lens and see if we can't look at some of the ways that Paul interacts with them and apply it to our own lives, and apply it to our own relationships with the people around us, our family, our friends, co-workers, neighbors, whatever it might be. So three things this morning. What our relationships need? Secondly, how do they look? How do gospel-centered relationships look? And then thirdly, why do they exist? What, how, and why? Those are the three points this morning. What how and why. Let's look at number one. Uh, What do our relationships need? And so let's work this out a little bit. Look at verse nine with me. How can you go back to the weak and worthless principles of the world? And last week, if you have your Bible open, look in verse three. He's mentioned this before. He said, you were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. What does that mean? Uh, Let me try to kind of clarify what Paul is getting at, because that can be a little hard to get your mind around. That phrase, uh, elementary principles of the world, was a phrase that was familiar uh, to the paganism of the Roman world in which the Galatians lived before they were introduced to Paul and Paul preached the gospel to them. The word, actually, the term refers to the elements of the material world that make up, the na- uh, make up nature. And so it refers to earth, wind, and fire, and fertility, and the moon, and all those things. That's why Paul is saying here that you were formally enslaved to those things that were by nature not God's. And you see, back then, they would believe that behind those basic elements of the world and creation were gods, and so you had the god of earth, and the god of water, and the god of wind, and the god of fire, and the fertility god, and the sun god, and all these different things, and Paul is saying that they are in danger of returning to the slavish idolatry that they were once involved in. But then we need to bring it back to the context, and remember the context in which he's writing. They are giving up the gospel of freedom, And they are returning to law-keeping as a way of being accepted by God. To return, as verse 10 says, look at verse 10, they are returning to observing days and months and seasons and years as a way of being right with God. And here's what Paul is getting at here. That earning your salvation through law-keeping 
through religion and morality is just as enslaving and idolatrous as your former pagan worship. Let me say that again, because that's his point here. He's saying that if you're going to do that, earn your salvation through law-keeping, Jesus plus something else, that is just as idolatrous and just as enslaving as your former pagan worship. That's why he says what he does in verse 9. How can you turn back to those things? And become slaves once more. They had exchanged, another way to say it, they had exchanged one idolatry for another. They had exchanged the idolatry of the gods of earth, wind, fire, and fertility for the gods of morality and religion and doctrinal purity. And you might first hear that and say, man, that sounds really strong. How can that even be possible? Surely religion is not that bad. How is it enslaving? He's saying it's like pagan worship. That's exactly what Paul is saying. Remember what religion is. If I obey, then I'm accepted by God. That's religion. If I obey, then I'm accepted. The baseline operating principle of religion is it's all about my performance. The gospel says it's all about Jesus' performance. Religion says I am enough and I am somebody if, if and when I perform enough. Religion is about doing the most right and the least wrong for the longest amount of time. Religion says it's about doing the most right and the least wrong for the longest amount of time. Religion is about doing. The gospel is about being and about what Jesus has done. And so you see the problem right from the get-go with religion and how it can be enslaving. Because if you have that model and that is your gospel, you can never rest. And Jesus came so that you can rest. And the reason why you can't rest in religion is because you never know when you've done enough. There's always more to do in order to please God. And I don't know about you, but that does not sound like good news. It's not good news. It does not sound like gospel freedom. That is slavery. Because you're on a never-ending performance treadmill. And it will crush you in the end. And this is why the Apostle Paul is so wound up in the book of Galatians you've been coming, you know he's used some very, very strong language. He's so wound up because this new slavery is actually worse than their old paganism. How in the world is that possible? Think about elder brother, younger brother. Who was in the greatest danger? The older brother. Paul knows this. Because he knows that self-righteousness blinds you to your own need. And it makes it harder for you to see your need for Jesus. Because Jesus came for broken, sinful, and needy people. And when you are blind to what you most need, then you're in a very dangerous spot. I love Flannery O'Connor, the southern writer, says this in her novel, Wise Blood. She's talking about a character in the, the book, and she says, There was a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to sin, was to avoid sin. The way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. You see, if we seek to justify ourselves with our own goodness, this is what it's saying, this is what Paul is saying, you're going to miss Jesus. You're going to miss Jesus that way. And remember, Paul is laying out two ways of living. You can justify yourself by your own good works, or you can justify it in other ways in the world. And if you do that, you will miss Jesus. Needy 
Jesus came for needy, broken sinners. That's why Paul is so wound up, because he doesn't want him to miss Jesus. The gospel is Jesus plus nothing. So, what do our hearts need then? That's, what, that's the problem that we are seeing here with the Galatians and often with our own hearts. What do we most need? Look at verse 9. But now that you are known by God, how can you turn back to slavery? He's not saying that they didn't know God. They were Christians, right? He's writing to Christians. Uh, We've talked about that in in, in the past. He's basically saying that what makes you a Christian is that you are known and loved by God. That's what makes you a Christian. And that is what all of us want. Every single person in this room wants someone to know them all the way to the bottom and still love them. That's what you want. And it scares us all to death. That's also the thing we want the most, but it's also the thing that scares us the most because we think if that really happened in my life, someone would either hurt me or they would have nothing to do with me. And so we just hide. And we're never really known. And so no one really knows our struggles, we think. No one can know about my secrets, and no one can really know what my family is like when I go home in the evening. And no one can know about my addictions, and no one can really know what goes on up in my head throughout the day. Because if they did, they would have nothing to do with me. And here's the gospel. God knows it all, and he loves you. God knows it all, and he loves you all the way to the bottom. And that's what makes the gospel such good news and different from the idolatry of paganism and religion. Because those gods enslave you and demand a sacrifice. They will demand a sacrifice. They will take your life every single time. The gospel frees you and gives you rest because God, Jesus himself, becomes the sacrifice for you. The cross is proof that God can know you all the way to the bottom and still love you at the same time because of what Jesus has done for us. So stop there and then we'll move on. But think about that in terms of your relationships. Gospel-centered relationships. It's got to start there. It's got to start with the fact that you are known and loved by God. Fill in everything that we talked about last week in chapter 4, that you're a child of God, that you have the full rights and privileges as his child. It starts there because once you get that, then your mood and your performance and your worth and value no longer rises and falls with your performance because you've got a stability about you. Because in the only eyes of the person, in the only eyes that really matter, God says you're mine and you're loved and you're significant, and you have value. And you see what that leads to, don't you? When you have that kind of security, and that kind of identity and stability, you enter into the world that we call self-forgetfulness. Because you're no longer worried about building your own righteousness, and building your own performance, and having to perform for somebody, or worried about what other people think of you, or comparing yourself against someone else, because you can begin to love and serve and minister to people in very radical ways, and you're not self-absorbed because you know who you are, that you're known and loved by God. That's what gives you the confidence to move towards other people instead of away from them in relationships. You're not a basket 
in a ball of insecurity, wondering what they're going to think of you because you know what God thinks of you. Secondly, let's look at um, the how. How does it look? How do these relationships look? Uh, What does it look like when we love and serve and live out these gospel-centered relationships? Well, we get a sense of it by looking at the way Paul interacts with the Galatians. Look at verse 12. There's two parts here. Paul says, Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Let's break that down. I have also become as you are. Paul entered into their lives. And I love, you can write this down and read it later, but he he adapted himself to them. It's his philosophy of ministry, you could say. What does that mean? 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19 and following. You can look it up later. But for though I am free from all, I made myself a, 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 I made myself a servant of all that I might win more of them. To a Jew, I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. To the weak, I became weak so that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that I might save some. And why does he do it? He says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. Paul enters into people's lives and he gets to know them and understands them. He doesn't stand afar and launch these grenades at them and tell them to get their act together. He enters into relationship with them and gets to know their questions and their fears and their hopes and dreams and he comes alongside them and he identifies with them. Why? For the sake of the gospel. Verse 12. And then he says, there's a balance here, become as I am. That at first sounds really arrogant, what's Paul talking about? He's simply saying, become as I am in terms of his unwavering commitment to gospel freedom. That's what he says, become like me and be committed to gospel freedom. Paul will not and does not compromise the gospel in his attempt to become as they are. Boy, that's a hard line, isn't it? He doesn't, and how do we know? Well, look at the rest of Galatians. When Peter compromised the gospel, what did Paul do? He didn't just say, eh, whatever. Remember over the lunch table, he got in Peter's face in front of them all and says, you're compromising the gospel. You're out of line. He tells an angel that the angel should be a curse if they preach something other than the gospel. And so he has this unyielding commitment to the gospel but yet flexibility about the details. Another way we could say it, Paul has a fixed theology, but a flexible methodology. I love Keller, Tim Keller says it this way, you know that you're growing in the gospel, and you know that you're growing in Christian maturity when you have an unyielding commitment to the gospel, and you don't make a federal case out of the details. You know that you're growing in maturity when you're unyielding about the gospel, but you don't make a federal case out of the details. Friends, one of the surest signs of immaturity in your life is that you make a federal case out of all of the details. You make a federal case out of how people worship. Make a federal case out of the color of the carpet and how people vote and how people dress and how people raise and educate their children. And that's a sure sign that you are insecure about God's love for you. Fill in everything that we talked about in point one. 
That's a sure sign that you're insecure about God's love and acceptance of you when you have to convince yourself of some other way that you are right and everyone else is wrong. When the grace of God enters your life, it makes you flexible. And you aren't moving into relationships and your first knee-jerk reaction from the get-go isn't you got to get in line, let, you're out of line on the details. You know what the first reaction is? You become as they are. Think about Paul. You sit down with them and you listen. And you enter into their story. And you hear about their pain and their wounds and their concerns. And you start to meet people where they really are in life. And instead of standing in judgment over them, you sit with people. And friends, when you sit with people, this is nine times out of ten at any time I've ever gotten to know someone's story. When I get up from the table, and this is true of you as well, I'm sure my first thought is normally always, I get it. I totally get why they're doing what they're doing. I totally get the way they act, that they act the way they do. I totally get the reason why they're struggling in such a way because you've heard their story. And like Paul here in the Galatians We must become a parable of Jesus to people. We must move out into the world, in our community, into our neighborhoods, and be a parable of Jesus. And what did Jesus, what did he do? Well, he moved towards people. And he did it in weakness and vulnerability. Because gospel relationships, centered relationships, we start with the fact that we're all a mess. That we're all beggars who have found bread. We start with the fact that we all need the exact same thing. And that is so important. Remember this book is written to Christians. And that is so informative for us. Because it tells us that this good news of the gospel. Is not just for non-Christians and the people out there. That it's actually for Christians. For us in here. Everyone needs the exact same thing. And so what that means is when we move out in our relationships. We don't look at people and say. You need to get your act together and go, go get with Jesus. You need to find Jesus. You really need Jesus in your life. No. Gospel-centered relationships begin. The playing field's level. You're a mess and you say, you know what? I need the exact same thing that you need. I need Jesus too. And so let's go find Jesus together. Let's go encounter him together. You see, you never outgrow the gospel, friends. You never outgrow the gospel. You want to go deeper into your faith, it all goes back to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it's the leveling experience, you see. In front of Jesus, we're all the same. Lastly, what's the why of gospel-centered relationships? In other words, what's the goal? Where are they... Uh, intended to head what's the purpose look at verse 19 and we can see what Paul desires for the Galatians here and learn something about our own relationships he says in verse 19 my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you You, that's a lot we could say here but you sense Paul's love for them calls them children uh, but you also sense Pain 
in the Apostle Paul here, it's like a parent of children. If your children aren't doing well, most of the time you're not doing well. And Paul wants them to be so formed into the likeness of Jesus that he is in pain. He uh, relates it to the pain of childbirth. The false teachers were saying, be like us. The Apostle Paul says, I don't want you to be like them or me. I want you to be like Jesus. And he's in pain until that actually happens. That's the goal in your relationships. Becoming more like Jesus. Side note. I was convicted this week as I was reading through this because I think one of the things, again, lots of application we can make, but one of the applications is I think this leads us to repentance in our relationships with everybody. Because how often, I know it's true in in my life and in my home and in the people I interact with, I get frustrated because I want people to be like me rather than be like Jesus. And that's a lot of the time where our problems come from in our marriages and our frustrate, or frustration in our uh, uh, relationships with our children. And we get so angry with them because we're actually, we might not see it, but we're trying to create them into our image rather than into the image of Jesus. We want everyone to be like us and think like us and have our personality and temperament and our interests and our passions and like the same sports teams that we like, and we could list a thousand other things. And ever so slightly, we wouldn't say that out loud, but it happens in our hearts, and we end up resenting people because they're not like us. Paul says, don't be like us. Don't be like me. Be like Jesus. That's the goal of relationship. End of side note. So here's the question from this is how do you get there? How does someone, how are they formed into the image of Christ? Lots of things we could say. You could, you're formed in the image of Christ through Bible study and prayer and worship and admonishment from a friend and the Lord's Supper. We could go on and on. But look at verse 19. I want to point out one thing here because it gives us a clue. Verse 19, the you there in the original language, which is the Greek in the New Testament, The you is plural. And that might not sound like a big deal, but Paul being the good southerner that he is, says, I am in anguish until Christ is formed in y'all. You should laugh at that. Come on. In other words, what he's saying, the implication is that this Christ-likeness in being formed in the image of Christ is to take place in community. The Bible from beginning to end, Christianity's never meant, it's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. It's all about a community moving, moving forward in the world. That's how you're formed into the image of Christ. Not in isolation by yourself, just you and your Bible. And so God uses people. He uses relationships. And so you start thinking about God uses your relationships in your life with friends, everybody in order to make you more and more into his image, which that was Paul's goal for the Galatians. And so you start realizing really quickly that that sounds pretty painful. Anybody else in relationships that oftentimes are hard and difficult? Paul says it's like childbirth, and you sense his pain throughout the entire book. And so we could apply this, and I'm going to do one application, that we could, but we could apply it to all our relationships, and I want you to do that. I want you to think out the implications of this for your friends at school, uh, in workplace, uh, the people at the gym, whatever it might be. 
Think about how this connects in those ways. But let me mention one specific application to how this plays out in marriage and family. In your marriages, if you're married, you can't hide your critical spirit. You can't hide your selfishness. You can't hide your impatience and your moodiness. And in marriage, God actually takes your own selfishness and He uses it against you for your good. God uses your spouse to bubble up your sin so that you would finally deal with it. So that you would finally see your need and run to Jesus in repentance and faith. Another way we could say it is the very thing right now that is driving you crazy and driving you nuts about your spouse is the very thing that God is using to make you more like him. What about your children? God uses also your children to make you more into his image. I love Dan Allender's book, How Children Raise Parents. Isn't that a great title? How Children Raise Parents. And what he gets at is that we tend to think, and I, this is where we tend to go, I go here, we tend to think that, that the parent-child relationship is it's all about the parents training the child. It's all about them uh, raising them and shaping them and teaching them. And it is. But the point of his book is to say it's really the opposite. Parenting is more about what God's doing in the parent than he's doing in the child. See, when we see the selfishness in our children, we get angry and our tendencies to get really, really frustrated with them. And instead of getting frustrated with them, our parenting and our children are meant to be a mirror that reflects back on us and our own heart. So that when we see them, it shows us just how selfish and impatient we are. The only difference is we're a little bit older. And we cover it up better. And hide it better. But in reality, our hearts are the exact same as theirs. I used to tell my students, and one of the things I try to teach my children is the only difference between me and you is that for whatever reason God put me on this or 30 years before you, but we're exactly the same. You see how God uses relationships to form you into the image of Christ. And how would our perspective be this morning if we really believed that? Look at verses 14 through 17. It's heartbreaking because they used to love Paul. He says they would gouge out his, uh, their eyes for him, and now he says, you're my enemy. So something has changed. And here's what's changed. Paul is speaking the truth to them in love. He's, he's spoken some hard words. But instead of them receive, receiving that as God forming them into the image of Christ, they got mad and they see Paul as the enemy and they say, we don't want anything to do with you, Paul. You're now my enemy. What if instead of doing that, do we do that? Someone confronts you. We see them as the enemy, or we see it as someone else's fault. What if instead of doing that, we believed that God was actually using that to work in us and move in in us closer to being made into the image of Jesus? What if, instead of frustration because people aren't like us, What if instead we saw something in the other person that was really beautiful? 
we saw that they are created in the image of God? What if instead of getting frustrated, we looked at them and beneath the flaws and the brokenness and the relationships and in the other person, what if we saw something wonderful and beautiful that God was making? Is that hard? Oh, it's so hard. And what if instead in that moment, which we normally do, we say, I'm out. It's too hard. I can't take this anymore. What if we leaned in and moved towards them and became a part of making them more and more into the image of Jesus. Wouldn't that be a beautiful thing? It's not an easy thing, but it's a beautiful thing. Who is God using in your life in that way this morning? And who are you being that for in your relationships? Gospel-centered relationships. The foundation, what's the key? Well, knowing that you're known and loved by God. That's the only way you're going to move towards people and not be a ball of insecurity. The second thing is we got to keep the gospel central. we got to love people and enter into the people's stories and lives. And then thirdly, we see here that Paul is saying, remember the goal. And it's a difficult goal, but it's the goal that Christ-likeness, being formed in the image of Christ, is where we're headed. We keep those things in mind. Those are the things are the keys to forming gospel-centered relationships like we see the Apostle Paul has with the Galatians. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, <clears throat> thank you that you sent your only son, Jesus, into this world. Thank you that we're known and loved by you. You know us all the way to the bottom and you don't run and you don't hurt us, but you love us and move towards us. Would you work in us through your spirit and give us grace uh, to be able to live out some of the things that we've seen here in this passage, be able to move towards people and enter in. Give us a great security for who we are in you. And Lord, help us not to forget the goal uh, when things get hard, that the goal is to become more like you. Would you do that in our relationships? In Jesus' name, amen.